In the 6th century BCE, the Babylonians leveled Jerusalem, including all the homes and the holy temple, and then they exiled most of the Jewish population off to Babylon. Seventy years later, they were permitted to return. However, the majority of the Jewish people decided to stay in Babylon because they had established a secure life there. They married, they had children, they started businesses, and many became key figures in Babylonian society. They didn't want to uproot their lives, only to start all over once again. But those who did leave never gave up the Zionist dream to one day return to Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, their eternal homeland that God had promised to their father Abraham. They are the ones behind the authorship of Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion, Zion is the temple mount. It's, it's the mountain uh, of God. So that's what it means to be a Zionist, is to, to, to long to come back to that spot. There on the, poplars, on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? But if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. You see, they never gave up the hope of returning. And when the opportunity afforded itself, they departed without giving it a single thought. And I can only imagine the incredible anticipation and the joy in their hearts as they made that 1,100-mile-long trek back home. We're told that this first remnant of 42,000 returnees led by Zerubbabel took about four months to make this trip, so they had a long time to anticipate their arrival. But their hearts quickly turned from joy to despair as they arrived, only to find their homes, the holy temple, and the walls and the gates that surround the city laying in ruins. But undeterred, they set out to rebuild everything, but because local enemies continually attacked them, they were unable to rebuild the outer walls and the gates that surrounded the city. You see, cities back then, they needed walls and they needed gates for protection. And until they could be rebuilt, they would remain vulnerable to attack. Meanwhile, back in Babylon, a Jewish man named Nehemiah, one of the exiles who decided to stay behind, had managed to become the king's Cupbearer. It's a high-ranking position of trust in the royal courts, and even though we don't know very much more about Nehemiah or why he decided to stay, like so many other Jews who decided not to leave, it was probably not an easy thing to walk away from such a distinguished and secure position in Babylonian society. Twenty years after that first remnant returned, Nehemiah's brother, along with some other men, journeyed back to Babylon from Israel. And Nehemiah is excited to reunite with his brother, and understandably, he's also anxious to hear an update about how things are going in Israel. So let's listen in to their conversation as I read the first four verses. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, 
While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Not exactly the news Nehemiah was hoping for, but listen to Nehemiah's heartfelt response to this bad news. The very next verse, in verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'm going to read that again. When I heard these things, this bad news, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So Brian launched us into this new series last week called A People at a Place. Lessons from the book of Nehemiah. And since we're finally seeing some breakthroughs in defeating COVID and returning slowly to some sort of normalcy, Brian talked about how we're going to look to God in this series to help us rebuild our lives and to re-engage back into community life once again. And after experiencing what's been a very long and difficult year for most of us, we believe it's time to rebuild and re-engage. And so several times during the message last week, Brian asked the question, how is God going to lead you to be part of rebuilding? And we're going to be revisiting this question many more times throughout this series. Because like the broken down walls and gates of Jerusalem, it took a team effort to rebuild. It's going to take a team effort to rebuild all that's been shattered in our lives from the challenges of this previous year. And to help us navigate thematically through this book, we're using a four-stage process of reflection, restoration, rebuilding, and renewal. And today, as we dive into the first stage of reflection, we're going to look at the important role that both loss and grief play in becoming better versions of ourselves. And the title of my message is Loss is Inevitable, Growth is optional. So first, let's look at the role of loss. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I received a master's from Talbot School of Theology in 1989, and I was fortunate to have a couple classes with H. Norm Wright, one of the leading authorities on loss and grief, who's written at least a couple dozen books on the subject, probably more. Professor Wright often said, life is just a series of acquisitions and losses. And what he meant by that is that we, in our life, we acquire things like relationship and toys and money and all kinds of things, but we also lose them. Some gain more than others and some lose more than others, but we all gain and lose things throughout our life. From the moment we're born until the day we die, from our first breath until our last breath. I mean, think about this. Think about this for a moment, right? A preborn. 
is all nice and snugly in its mother's womb as he floats, you know, effortlessly and quite peacefully <laughs> in the warm blanket of amniotic fluid, you know? This little preborn human does absolutely nothing. All of his biological functions and needs happen automatically, they're automatically met while he's uh, developing inside the womb. But all of that comes to a crashing and shocking halt once labor begins. As he starts barreling, hopefully head first, down the wild ride through that enclosed birth canal, leading to his debut in the world. Very similar, I think, to the wild ride one takes, hopefully not head first, down an enclosed water slide at a water park. Wait, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Look out, world, here I come! And bam, this little guy comes out with a... <gasps> and it's quite a gain in his life, but it doesn't take very long before he realizes that he no longer lives in a warm, worry-free, snuggly room, which, by the way, is why I believe babies begin to cry immediately after taking their first breath. Because not too long after birth, these newborns begin to think, hey, what's that strange feeling on my body? Wait a minute. I'm cold. And then not too much longer after that, what's that gurgling going on in my stomach? Wait a minute. I'm hungry. Hey, where's that strange smell coming from. Wait a minute, I'm poopy. Wah! I'm cold. Wah! I'm hungry. Wah! I'm messy. Wah! And probably you parents, I'm triggering some of your child-raising PTSD right now. Breathe. Just relax, okay? That's just an illustration. Breathe. Like you learned in uh, your Lamaze classes. Okay, the reality is that life is simply a series of acquisitions and losses that starts the very moment we're born, doesn't end until the very moment we die. And we see this acquisition-loss cycle in the creation story itself, where Adam and Eve acquire a beautiful garden to live in, doesn't require much effort on their part to care for it. I mean, all they really had to do was scrounge on the floor to pick up all the food that dropped from the trees. But they end up losing this paradise because of all the hundreds of trees they had permission to eat from, they had to sample the fruit from the only one that was off limits. We also see this gain and loss cycle in our seasons. And since God ordained spring... As the beginning of the biblical new year, did you know that? Spring is the beginning of the biblical new year. It's, new year, it's in your Bibles. Spring starts with a lot of gains, right? With new life and new birth. Summer has even more gains as the harvest is brought in. But fall begins kind of that slow descent towards dormancy and death. And in winter, dormancy and death are in full bloom. And then the cycle starts all over again. Gains, losses, gains, 
losses. And it's so important for us humans to understand that this endless cycle of gain and loss plays an important role in the development of our maturity and character. I mean, let's be very clear about this. Trials, suffering, loss are God's primary pathways to emotional, emotional and spiritual maturity. Now, I'm not real crazy about this, but the truth is, and listen to this, we all grow more when we lose things than we do than when we gain things. I'll say that again. We all grow more when we lose things than we do when we gain things. Haven't you found out that to be true in your own life? It's not that we can't experience any growth during times of prosperity. We do. But the kind of growth we experience while gaining things is often more superficial and short-lived, while the growth that we experience during times of loss is typically a much deeper and lasting work of the soul. And this is exactly what James is saying in the passage we just read, that the trials, the sufferings that we face, the losses that we face in life are what helps us to grow, and they're the pathways to become a deeper, more version of ourselves. You ever see the bumper sticker? Uh, I haven't seen it lately, but it was on cars for a long time. It says, hire a teenager while he still knows everything. Well, I mean, the truth is, doesn't it take a little bit of bumps and bruises in life before that kind of know-it-all attitude begins to fade away in us? There's also a Native American aphorism that says, listen to this, no wise person Ever wanted to be younger. No wise person never wanted to be younger. Younger. Emphasis on the word wise. Just think about that one for a while. Although I have to think, you know, if if I could have the stamina of youth and the wisdom of age all at the same time, I might sign up to be transported transported back a few decades, all right? You see, the, the longer we live, the more losses we accrue. And if loss is having its desired effect on our lives, then we're becoming less of a know-it-all, less black and white, less judgmental, less rigid, more patient, more empathetic, more humble, more inclusive, and more emotionally and spiritually flexible. Mary Howard and I have been leading a Zoom book study for a few weeks now, and the book we're studying is called Falling Upwards by Richard Rohr. I highly recommend it. And the title, Falling Falling Upwards, parallels the the countercultural teaching found in the Bible that the way up is down. If you want to go up, you need to go down first. I mean, didn't Jesus teach that if we truly want to live, we must first die? When Paul was facing a difficult trial in his life and he wanted it to be taken away, didn't God say, nah, I think I'll leave it because when, when you are weak, then you are strong. 
Richard Rohr calls this downward, topsy-turvy pathway necessary suffering. And he says that we must embrace our fallings and our failings. We must go downward before we can go upward. Thus the title, Falling Upwards. And here's what he says in the introduction of his book. By denying pain, when we, when we deny the pain in our lives or trying to avoid that necessary falling, many have kept themselves from their own spiritual depths and therefore have been kept from their own spiritual heights. I love that quote. You see, in God's economy, the way up is down. And the losses that we experience in our lives are God's primary pathway to deeper maturity. And, you know, sadly, we've all had lots of opportunity this past year to go on that downward path, haven't we? I mean, we, we, I, we could probably line up and have people share stories. I just want to tell you a little about the downward path that Andrew and I have gone down this past COVID year. We lost our beloved dog, Buddy, that we had for 13 years uh, at the beginning of COVID in 2020. Andrea lost her brother last summer. He was only my age. I'm 68. I lost my mom at the end of December last year. And so we've had this steady stream of unrelenting grief to deal with. And I might add, uh, we've had it while we've been stuck in the house together for most of it. And that's created a lot of tension in our relationship over this past year. In addition to all this, uh, all the loss we've experienced, I'm a strong extrovert. Andrew's a strong introvert. And being isolated in the same house together has sometimes felt like throwing a coyote and a rabbit into the same cage. I won't say who's the coyote and who's the rabbit to protect the not-so-innocent, but you get the picture. And in addition to that, if that isn't enough already, we're, we're not on the same page politically. And so the months leading up to the election last November and, and has presented a real challenge for us at times, even to this day. We're also dealing with some health issues that have exaggerated things. And don't forget to throw in all the challenges that just come normally with all marriages. That all adds up to a really tough, long year for us. We'll be reaching 47 years of marriage next month, which is an incredible accomplishment. But honestly, if I had to give a grade for our marriage this past year, I'd have to give it an F for fail. And I'm pretty sure Andrea would grade it the same way. We're both looking forward to the time when that necessary suffering of falling and and failing that we're experiencing our relationship right now results in a deeper version of ourselves. But until that time arrives, would you just pray for us? Please don't send us the name of some miracle worker, healer, or therapist, or the name of a cutting-edge book that changed your life. Just, Just pray. Just pray for us. Being a pastor is often like living in a fishbowl. It's, it's, it, we, we feel that way, you know, especially when we share our personal struggles. And so it's easy to be inundated with advice and sympathy from well-intended people. But just know that we're like you. We have some good years. We have some challenging years. This has been one of those challenging years for us.
but we both have people in our lives who are supporting us. The truth is, no one likes to experience trials or pain or suffering, but never forget, never, ever forget that loss is God's primary pathway to get us to a deeper version of ourselves. That'll help a little bit when you're in the thick of it. That's the role of loss. The second thing I want to look at is the role of grief. Loss may be the road most traveled, but it doesn't always lead to more maturity in our lives. It's not a given that if you experience loss, you're going to become more mature. That's the role that grief plays. Grieving over our losses, no matter how big or how small they are, is the determining factor of whether or not we're going to become a better or a bitter person. Jesus once said in Matthew 5, 4, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because mourners will be comforted. Which means conversely, if we flip this, if we don't mourn, we're not going to be comforted. About eight years ago, I developed a pretty serious problem in my back. I didn't have back pain. I just had a shooting kind of neurological uh, impulse that went down and, and, and made my glutes and my hamstrings so painful that eventually um, it became chronic at about a, 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 an eight or a nine pain level. The pain was so intense that I often had to lie down uh, on the couch I couldn't really keep going anymore by early afternoon. Over time, and it's a whole long story about how I did this, but I was able to return, no surgery, uh, to about 97% normalcy. But even that residual 3% grinds daily on my physical and emotional well-being. It's a daily battle for me. But it's manageable. I'm able to be active and enjoy my life. Now, imagine... Endlessly, endlessly living with the severe pain and discomfort that comes from experiencing loss. I mean, loss can be extremely painful, even debilitating. But God never intended for the pain that we experience during loss to remain in our lives indefinitely. I mean, yes, it'll have a, a lifelong impact on us, but the pain, the intensity, the debilitation of, of loss was never meant to be indefinite. And when we don't allow ourselves a season to grieve over our losses, that pain can quickly turn into a lifetime of bitterness, and the symptoms of bitterness can be even more debilitating than the loss itself. Symptoms like rage and depression, mistrust, cynicism, addictions, and even a loss of faith in God, just to name a few. No one, not one person ever became a better version of themselves simply because they experienced loss. For that to happen, we must learn how to mourn our losses. Because mourning is the only 
way that pain can be leveraged into positive transformation. Mourning is the only way that pain can be leveraged into positive transformation. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever taken the time to rank countries according to how well they mourn as a country over their losses, but I'm certain that if our country, our country would rate way towards the bottom. I mean, in our culture, grief is almost seen as a sign of weakness. And we value those who can suck it up and just move on with their lives more than we value those who would take the time out of their lives to grieve. We all pay a huge price for this. I think some of the stats that Brian read off last year of veterans coming home and uh, the pain that they feel plays into this, our inability to know how to grieve well. And so since grieving is like so important, I want to end this message today by giving you two filters that you can run all your losses through so that they don't turn into bitterness, okay? Number one, you need to have an eternal perspective, not a finite one not an earthly one. You need to have a heavenly perspective, not an earthly one. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be informed about those who sleep in death. He means those who have died. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 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 You know, the word for hope and faith are made out of the same root word. Did you know that? Loss. Pain, suffering are all jarring to us when we experience them. And some of the things that happen to us and our loved ones will never make sense this side of eternity. I'm always shaking my head and saying, you know, God, what were you thinking with that one? And sometimes the impact of our losses never go away in this lifetime. But when you have an eternal perspective, you know that this life is only temporary, that there is a life to come where all that pain and all that suffering and all that loss disappear forever. This is often the only way to make sense of some of the losses in our lives. All the Jewish prophets, all of them, lamented for that time to arrive quickly. As I'm sure many of you have lamented to God during this past year, or maybe for some other things that have happened in your life. And like, like the psalmist, David, how long, God? Is there something wrong with your hearing or your seeing God? You can't hear or see what's going on? I mean, these were deep laments from the gut. Those questions, by the way, are rarely answered. 
But there will be a day when those questions will be answered. And for now, all we can do is hold on to the promise of eternal relief. That's why it's called hope or faith. I will have hope. And it's honestly the reason why we listen to messages like this, because it helps bolster up our faith and our hope. The second filter is to develop a process of grief that works for you. Most of you know the story of Job who lost his family, his business, and his health all in one moment. And understandably, it had an immense effect on his physical and emotional well-being. And so Job chapter 2 verse 12 says, it says, When Job's friends saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. I mean, this is how distraught he is. It actually changed the way he looked. And they're so affected by this, it says they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. A sign of mourning and grief and loss. It says, then they sat on the ground. It literally says he sat low on the ground. They sat on the lo- low on the ground for him for seven days and seven nights. That's where the, the Jewish custom of sit and shiva sitting with people for for a week uh, during intense grief. That's where this comes from. And it says, no one said a word to him, just being silent. I love that, by the way, because so many times, again, you know, well, here's this great book, or here's this person, right? They didn't say a word. They were just with him. That's what most people want when they're going through tough times. They just want people to be with them, to be empathetic. Because they saw how great his suffering was. From this passage, just like Sit and Shiva, the Jewish world has developed a year-long process for grief. Because the Jewish sages knew that if God found it important enough to include this grief scene in our Bibles, it must be important for us to grieve. And so for a year, we Jews take a posture of grief and mourning. And there's many things um, that we do to keep grief out in front of us. This is, a, this is called a seven-day yartzit, or a memorial candle. That's what, what yartzit means, memorial. I received from the mortuary when my mom passed away on December 27th. It parallels those seven days that Job's friend sat on the ground with him for seven days. You can see it's been long past seven days since December 7th, and it'll probably take us a year to burn that. But we light it when we want to have a time of grieving and to have a symbol that helps bring that out in us. I've also, and, and Andrew and I, you know, we did this for our dog Buddy, for her brother, and we've done it for my mom. We, we create like a little picture shrine of photographs, but also maybe some key things that we have from, from their life. We do that in our, our bedroom. I have a little one in, in our bedroom as well on the wall. It, it's just something to keep the memory of my mom out in front of us. 
I had one of my mom's pictures taped on the wall just above my bed, and a couple of weeks ago, I, I sleep with a fan on. I like to mask sound, and I just like room to be cool, but a couple of weeks ago, it just fell in the middle of the night and woke me up. So I thought, okay, Mom, you, you want to talk, right? So we just hung out together for a while because I figured that's what, what she wanted, and I actually needed it. It was a special time. It really was. I felt like it was divinely appointed. Some people like to journal during times of mourning. Others like to have times of meditation, thinking about their loved one. We've taught about how helpful lamenting is because we see people like David lamenting so often. I just read or just paraphrased a couple things that he said. And also the prophet Jeremiah who wrote an entire book on the Bible called Lamentations. Hello. There's just not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to mourning. And you can find volumes of ideas by just Googling grief or mourning on the Internet or buy some of Norm Wright's books. They're fantastic. The important thing here is to develop a grief process that works for you so that you can be ready whenever loss comes knocking at your door. And if it hasn't yet, it will soon. So that loss can ultimately be leveraged into positive transformation. Loss is inevitable. You can't escape it. Growth is optional. That's where mourning comes in. So we've been trying to, on the second Sunday of each month to, to take communion together. So I hope, since we're, we're not here at the building, we had to cancel because of a severe snowstorm that's coming in tonight for the next three days. Uh, we're, just, we're just streaming this into your living room. And um, hopefully you've got something that you can have. Take the communion elements. Now's a good time. If you don't have, like, grape juice and some bread or matzah, I mean, just get anything. Get some milk and graham crackers. That'll work. All right, and um, it's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 53, it says about the Messiah that he was a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Jesus was a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. He understands. He understands our suffering. God came to earth to know what it's like to suffer. And listen to this. Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. I mean, that will blow your mind theologically. Even Jesus needed to experience growth, transformation. How did it come? Through suffering. God never asks us to do something he doesn't do First, I don't know how many times I've said that over the 27 years I've been here. So if you have the elements in your hand, I'd just like you to just sit and reflect for a couple of moments on the losses that you've accrued in your life, whether it was just 
last year or the year before or a decade ago. Just try and remember those key losses that you've experienced. And as you're reflecting, I'd just like you to make a quick, I don't know, test of whether or not you believe that those losses made you a better person or a bitter person. See, communion is, is, is where we come together. We have a common union. Our common union is, is our faith. In Yeshua, the one who suffered for us. And there's something cathartic about this sacrament that we do together. It was never meant to be just a ritual, it has life to it. This is Jesus' body, this is Jesus' blood. This is his body broken for you. This is his blood poured out for you. Jesus said, as often as you eat these elements, drink this wine. Do it in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? How much he loves us. How much he'll come back for us. How much at some point we're going to ride up into the sunset to live happily ever after the end? No. Just a new beginning. All the pain stuff fades away. If you've had a lot of pain in your life, our hope, our faith, is to trust that this day is coming. This helps us to remember. Let's eat the bread. And drink the cup. Lord, so many of us have so many things that just raise more questions than answers about pain and suffering. I pray that somehow today that this message would bring a little bit of salve, a soothing to the souls of those who are not able to move forward from this pain. Teach us as a congregation, how to grieve well. That we might leverage that pain into transformation. And until that time you return, God, we will have hope. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.